0: Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. My name is Chris Causey. I'm the lead pastor here. And I'm so glad that you are here today. And likewise, I am glad I am here today. Uh, I've been out for about a month. Um, we just celebrated the birth of my brand new son. And so, yes, so we're super pumped about that. I, I give you that disclaimer in that um, if at any point I seem incoherent, don't worry, i come back. Um, it just takes the time. Right now, we're not sleeping very much. I, I walked out, I got here and I was like, I forgot to shave this morning. I was like, well, I guess that's better than not wearing deodorant. So at least I got that part right, okay? And so, um, But one of the things that made me excited, just getting back, seeing your beautiful face, but it's also, um, while I've been out for the month, I've also been planning for the next year. And I've never been more excited for this season of where we're going as a church. And the from the message series to the new things that we're rolling out uh, to the 112 that has been modified and improved that kicks off next month. There's just so much good stuff. And I'm just grateful that I get to be a part of it with you. And so um, this t- today we're kicking off a new series uh, called You're Not the Boss of Me. And the, over the course of this month, I want to make you a little bit of a promise, but I want to give a disclaimer. Um, the, the goal for this series is for you to begin to retake control back from the emotions that often seek to control you. Um, And I can't fully promise this is what you're going to look like at the end of this month, but my goal is that we'll shift a little bit and experience a little bit of the confidence with our emotions that Tony uh, Tover experienced a couple weeks ago. I don't know if you saw this, but he was at a bar um, in St. Louis, and a guy walks in and begins to rob it and uh everybody hits the floor, people are terrified, and actually what kind of went viral with it was the surveillance video hit the internet. And so you see this man sitting at the bar, and he's just kind of confidently sitting there while... The bar is actively being robbed, and this man is walking around with a gun and pointing it and telling people, give me your money. And and Tony not only just sits there with swagger at the, the, the like counter, he not only defies it, he goes and defies St. Louis law and lights a cigarette. Like, that's not even legal in St. Louis. They're like, that's just how confident this guy is. And then when the man tries to steal his cell phone, he yanks it back from him. Like, if somebody tried to yank my, I'd give him my cell phone, my wallet. I'd tell him where my, like, safety deposit box was. Like, I mean, you know, you want my passwords to my Gmail account? I'll give you that one too. All right. But Tony sits there and with this, like, bravado that is mind blowing, just stands the guy down. Tony in that moment was in control of his emotions. His emotions were not in control of him. And the reason I think this series matters is because I don't have to know you to know this about you. I know this about me, too, is that the moments in my life where I wish I could redo the moments in my life where I wish I could undo were often the moments when the emotions were in control of you. Right. The moments that you wish you could redo the moments wish you could undo were those moments when the emotions were often in control of you. And so the question I want to address today, the, the to lean into is what do you do? when you find yourself in a moment where the emotions are in control of you? What do you do? How do you navigate it? From the jerk at work that you can't get away from, to the jerk at home sometimes that you're stuck with, to the teenage kid or to the seven-year-old who thinks they're a teenager, and everything in between. How do you navigate and deal with the emotions when they're in control of you? And to answer the question, I want to take you back to a song to a poem written 3,000 years ago. Now, if maybe you're like me and instantly you just developed hives because the epic of Gilgamesh or Beowulf just came to mind. Because when I was in school, I remember having to read really old poems and really old literature and, and just jump back 500 years to Shakespeare. And oftentimes, I didn't understand it. And... So the idea of a poem 3,000 years ago, being able to speak to your moment today can seem a little bold, but what's amazing is if I hadn't told you, you probably wouldn't have even known it was written 3,000 years ago. It was written by a man who is one of the most prolific songwriters in all of the Bible. See, the book of Psalms is actually, the word Psalms means song or poems. And so the book of Psalms were the ancient Jewish hymn book. We sing on and kind of read off of TV screens. Uh, There are some churches today and churches throughout the last few hundred years who pull up books and read from them. And for the Jewish people, they used the book of Psalms. That was their hymnal. That was the songs they sang when they gathered together religiously. And the biggest songwriter of the group was a guy named David. David is one of Israel's most famous kings. He lived about 3,000 years ago. And to, when I say he's the most prolific writer, I mean 150 psalms. David's responsible for 74 of them. So he almost wrote half of the psalms in the book. Now, what's fascinating is that David's kind of a unique guy. Like I just told you, he's a songwriter. But what David's famous for is also being a warrior. It wasn't just what he did with his pen when he wrote songs. It's what he did with his sword to the enemy. Which is a little bit of kind of like, kind of, wow, this is an interesting combination, right? It would be like if you watched a Jason Bourne movie, or maybe like T'Challa from Black Panther, like these people who just walk in, they just, right, and just take people down. And then the scene cuts over, and now they're in a, a little cafe somewhere with a guitar being independent singer-songwriter. You're like, whoa, whoa, hold up, time out, what just happened? He was just... Taking some people down, and now he's like, this is a song I wrote about my cat last week when the cat got sick. Just really emotionally did something to me. Right? You would be like, this does not fit. But yet, that's who David was. An amazing warrior, and yet, a sensitive poet. And the thing that was amazing about David is David wasn't just control of his body, he also modeled for us how to control his emotions. And the song that he wrote that I want us to look in today is part of like a would have been a shorter album release of one from Psalm 37 to 40. They're kind of a group because of some thematic elements that we won't get into today. But in the middle of those, David gets to Psalm 40 and he lays out a pattern for us that I think answers the question, what do you do when you find yourself in a moment when the emotions are in control of you? It gives us a path for us to follow along. What's unique about David is that of the 74 that he wrote, 43 of them are the type of Psalms that deal with negative emotion. That's one of the things I appreciate about the Bible. If you spend time reading it, what you find is it's raw and real. If I was going to make up a religion, I would not have the characters and the people in my religion be so jacked up. I wouldn't make them so crazy. I wouldn't have them dealing with so many hard things. And yet, what does David's... A bulk of David's writings are dealing with hard times in life. And the psalm that we're going to look at today is one of those, I'm in the middle of a hard place. I'm in the middle of a personal struggle. In Psalm 40, at the end of of the passage, in verse 17, he writes these words. But as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help, my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. We see David, right at the end of this like album, he gets to this place where he essentially says to God, God, I'm, I'm broken, I'm poor, I'm needy. He's not just talking about financially, he's talking about emotionally, because he's been walking through a hard time. He's going through a really challenging circumstance. We don't exactly know what the circumstance was. If you read Psalm 37 through 40, which were all our collective group, um, we know that from the collective reading that it was something he had done. It was a personal choice he had made that had caused some consequences and some personal agony in his life that had rippled through his relational world around him. And I'm actually grateful that we don't know exactly what it is because it's just vague enough that we all can step in to his struggle that we, we can all lean into and learn from what David does in this moment. And that the first thing that David does in, in dealing with and addressing his emotions when they're in control of him is he, he just recognizes that they're there, right? He makes the point at the end of Psalm 40 to say, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You're my help, You're right? He's like, God, I'm just devastated. I'm in agony. I need you. And I don't want you to skip over that because it's actually a really important and powerful first step when you're dealing and you find yourself in a moment when the emotions are in control of you. You have to notice it. You have to recognize, wait a second, I'm experiencing some really strong emotions right now. you got to label it. So, all right, you know, I'm really angry right now. This is something I do with my seven-year-old. I'll, I'll see her kind of emotionally kind of start to bubble up. And, and my first question is, what are you? what are you feeling? I want you to learn to label what you're feeling right now because many of us go through the course of everyday life and we never even label the first thing that we never label the anxiety. We never label the anger or the fear or the guilt or the shame that oftentimes is driving us in those moments. And by teaching her and training her to label what it is, it starts to put her back in a leadership role. You see, emotions aren't good drivers, but they're really good indicators if you kind of think of your car, emotions would be the dashboard lights. They're not the driver. They're really bad when they get in the driver's seat, but they're really helpful for you as the driver. But like any car that has a little bit of age on it, you've probably noticed that sometimes the check engine light comes on when there's no reason. If you happen to step into my 2003 buick Lesabre, Sabre, sweet, sweet ride, you'll notice that my dashboard's currently lit up like a Christmas tree. And it's because my my gas cap is loose. Now I could react and drive into a, a a mechanic and say, you know, drop hundreds of dollars and say I want these dashboard lights to disappear. But the reality is it's a gas cap, and it's a defect with with Buick LeSabres from 2003. And I live with it. And so while emotions are indicator lights, they're they're trying to make us aware that something's not exactly right. It doesn't always mean that there's something wrong that's where the labeling is helpful. I am living this right now. I'm um, pretty sleep deprived. My wife, really sleep deprived. And I've just felt like Jenny, uh, we had like a rough night two nights ago. And I walk in to the living room. She's like, you just look really angry right now. I was like, I'm not. No, I'm not angry. I'm just, I think when I don't sleep, my face looks angry at the world. <laughs> and, you know, it's just kind of like grunt. Get to the coffee and, so, 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 and then I move to the next thing. But there's actually like she's kind of picking up on something. Like, um there's a general category. When you find yourself hungry, angry, lonely, tired, stressed, those are normally moments where the emotions can easily slide into the driver's sleep. Right? When I'm sleepy, and Jenny's wise, when I'm sleepy, I, I'm like the 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 worst version of me when I'm sleep deprived. For some of you, it's when you're hungry, right? Like you become this next level terrifying individual. There's even like a word for you, like hangry, right? Like I, Two of the four members of my family experience this transformative power of hangry. And so if we're on a road trip and I start to sense rumblings of my wife or my daughter getting hungry, I will switch five lanes to get to some grocery store or some gas station to get some food in them because hangry happens. It's real. For some of you, when you're lonely, that's when you make your worst choices. And for some of you, it's when you're stressed and you feel pressure and you feel powerless in the midst of it that some of the worst moments come out. But by labeling it, you put yourself in a position to navigate it. And that sets you up for, I think, what we see David do next. So David's labeled it. We know why he writes Psalm 40. He writes because he's in a broken, difficult, hard, agonizing, emotional place. But then you jump back to the beginning of verse Of Psalm 40 in verse 1. And it feels almost like whiplash. Because he begins the whole psalm with this. I waited patiently for the Lord. And he heard my cry. Now this is important. I read verse 17 first. Because I want you to know why he wrote it. Because what can happen is. If you start with Psalm 40 at the beginning. You can miss the power of what David was doing. Because Psalm 41 starts off really positive. It sounds really good. It's the type of sentence, if we all could pick in life, we would want to say Psalm 41. We wouldn't want to be in a place where we're saying Psalm 4017. But yet, David's saying them both. Why? because he doesn't just recognize and label where he is. He then intentionally, with this psalm, begins to recount not where he is, but where he was. You see, what happens when you have these strong emotional moments... As it gets really cloudy, we lose perspective. Most of us fall into the trap of believing that we're really good predictors of the future, but we all stink at predicting the future. But David understands something, that while we may all stink at predicting the future, we're all really good at remembering the past. And so what does David do? He looks back. He doesn't just look in and fixate on the emotion. He looks back to another moment, similar to this moment. He looks back to another moment that's already been done, that's already happened, and he recounts what happened then. He remembers that moment that he felt back then where it was so agonizing, it was so heavy, and it was so overwhelming, and he waited patiently on the Lord, and he turned to me and he heard my cry. In verse 2, he writes this really poetic kind of imagery. He says that... Not only did he hear my cry, he lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire, and he set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He's looking back, he's recounting, and as he's recounting, he's he's remembering that God has once before stepped into where he was, and he's lifted him out, and he's he's put him on a solid rock, and he's put him in a stable place, and he gave him a firm place to stand, and he, he draws strength from looking back. He draws energy from recounting what God had done before, and this is an inspiration for him in this verse 17 moment that he finds himself in. He's drawing strength from where he's seeing God work before. He's not just freaking out. He's not just kind of collapsing inwardly. He's remembering, and maybe you're in a situation right now, and you don't necessarily have some kind of like corollary for it, but you've got something that rhymes with this situation. Maybe you've never dealt with this kind of relational problem, but you've dealt with other relational problems. Maybe you've never dealt with this professional struggle, but you've had some other professional struggles or other personal moments in life that kind of rhymed with this moment that you find yourself in and go back to that moment. That moment doesn't feel as big as this one. That moment worked out because you're still here. That moment can give you inspiration to kind of just draw the strength that you need to do in order to take that third and final step. So you want to recognize. You want to recount by looking back. And then with that posture, it sets you up to take that final step to answer the question, what do you do when the emotions are in control of you? So um, I told you that about four weeks ago, um, we had a son. His name is Christopher Henry. Um, he's adorable. He looks just like his sister. Unfortunately, he looks like me, but we're working on that. The other half of our relate, you know, Jenny and I, she's beautiful. She's smart. So I'm hoping as Ella has drifted towards her, Henry's going to follow the path of his mom because that's a better path to follow in general. And, um, But one of the fascinating things about having a newborn is, so Ella's seven, and and so Henry's a newborn, and you kind of forget all the, like, hard things when a baby's born. I think it's nature's way or God's way of, like, making sure you have another one, because none of us would rationally step back into that if we remembered how little sleep we got, right? I mean, governments use lack of sleep as a torture method to get state secrets out. Like, if my son could speak, he'd get my PIN code right now. He'd get my bank account. Like, he, he could break me at any point he wants to. And all he has to do is just not sleep. And so one of the fascinating things, though, is that when a newborn is born, they're physiologically, they're so different from us. That's why there are doctors whose specialty deal with them specifically. And so when a newborn steps into the world, one of the systems that's least developed is their nervous system. And specifically, if, if for those who are medically inclined, biologically inclined in the room, you'll remember that nervous system, or from high school biology, nervous system is actually two separate systems. You've got the system that we think about that's the fight and flight system, the one that steps in, the one that kind of kind of rallies and adrenaline pumps. And then you've got the other system, the, the rest and digest system. It's the one that's responsible for kind of helping you take deep breaths and calming down and Relaxing. And that specific system is the one that's least developed in newborns. That's the one, that's the reason why when you see a newborn, they always require a parent to calm them down. It's because it's this amazing thing. They don't have the ability to self-soothe. They don't have the ability to calm down. They don't have the ability to just kind of rest and digest. And so what do they do? They learn from you how to do it. When a parent picks up the newborn, holds them tight, sings to them, breathes deeply in and out with them, the heartbeat pounding gently that they hear in your chest, the deep breathing that you're doing, the way your warmth kind of covers over them like a blanket, all of that is training their bodies how to learn how to calm down. It's amazing. They can't do it for months but they're learning from you how externally, this external force can actually shape their um, internal emotional state. That's why when you see a crying baby and mommy gets a hold of it, it's like, boom, it's like a sedative. It's because that system's not there yet. And, if, and effectively, the parents become that system. And as we get older, we learn to self-soothe. But the reality is, is that you and I can still be emotionally affected and led by something external you and I can still be kind of shifted out of the fight and flight system into the rest and digest system. And we've all experienced it. It's why when you find yourself in the moment and you're in the car by yourself, you turn on the radio and all of a sudden you feel good. Right? There are songs for some of you that you hear on the radio. It could be 15 years. It could be a song you haven't heard in 20 years. And something happens on the inside. All of a sudden, the window's being rolled down. It doesn't even matter if it's winter. And you're like, don't stop believing. I mean, you just go into a place. And all of a sudden, you feel a little bit better. There's a reason that athletes from an early age, you see them walking in, or watch the Olympics. You see them, they've got the headphones on. And they're going in. And they're listening to music. Why? Because that music is doing something to them emotionally. They are borrowing the emotional energy from that song and bringing it on the inside. It's something that newborns intuitively know to do. And it's something as adults we still do. And it's exactly what David's doing in this passage. David is redirecting his emotional energy by writing this psalm down. This is a song. It's, it's a journal entry. It's a poem. And what does David do? The physical act of David writing this song is redirecting his emotional energy. It's taking the agony that he's experiencing, the apprehension that he's feeling, and he's redirecting it in a positive and healthy way. He's channeling some positive energy through this. It's a subtle thing, but it's actually quite brilliant. There are other ways. It's not just singing or listening to music or journaling or writing. Sometimes it's just taking a step back and taking a few deep breaths or taking a walk, getting outside and breathing in to get a fresh perspective so that you can continue to, to recognize, label the emotion and recount previous moments where you made it through and it turned out okay and then redirect that positive energy into this kind of current negative space that you find yourself in. Sometimes it can be as simple as having a conversation with a friend, not about what you're going through, because that never works, right? If you've ever noticed, how was work today? Well, let me tell you about work. This coworker said this to me. Like, you're not okay at the end of the conversation. You're ready to go punch them in the face. Because all it did is stir up more emotion. But when they're like, how was work today? Instead of focusing on the jerk or the coworker, you're able to say, well, you know what? Actually, I got this project approved today. It was really exciting. Or this, you know, this person, I finally heard back from email from them and they'd been holding me up or I just got this promotion or this just happened to me. Like even those simple things can be something to help you kind of redirect the emotional energy that you're feeling. And that all of this just kind of practically, I talked about the jerk. So kind of put it all together? This is what it looks like you're sitting at work, somebody at work makes you really angry. You don't lash out. First you look in, you label it. You're like, okay, let me recognize what's happening. I'm really angry at them. Why? I'm angry because the way, what they just said to me belittled me or they dismissed me. And for me, that really makes me mad. That's why I'm wanting to slap them or pick up my computer and hit them. Okay. That's good. They just belittled me. Now, you know what? Let's recount they're not the only one that makes me angry like this. I had a cousin who used to do this all the time. Is that cousin who went to that better school that whenever they came and they asked me what I was learning in my school, they'd make little snide comments about what they said. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, I wanted to hit them with something too, but you know, I never had a pending criminal charge. I never lashed out. I navigated them. I can navigate him too. And then, Not just the recognizing, not just the recounting, but now the redirecting. So I'm going to take a deep breath, and I'm just going to walk away, because if I stay at this cubicle, there's probably going to be a criminal pending charge pressed against me, so I'm just going to walk away. Now, this is an oversimplified emotional example. You put your situation in your circumstance, and what you'll find is if you're willing to recognize in the moment, label what it is, recount a moment that's similar where you didn't take the bad choice, and then take a step back and redirect some of that emotional energy, what you'll find is oftentimes this works. This is what I've been doing for the last month without sleeping because everything just makes me frustrated on the inside. I, I, I mean, I, I had water dripping on my head a couple weeks ago. It was like a week after Henry was born. And my wife was like, he's already, I mean, I was over there and she was like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, this water, it keeps dripping on me. I don't think I can handle it. And she was like, are you being for real right now? Like this boy already broke you and he's like a week in. To this planet, like this, isn't good. I'm like, I, I know. I just, I need sleep. I mean, I just felt it. But I, I I do this regularly, because I know whenever bad news hits right now, I'm just frustrated with it, because I'm tired. So take a step back. I recognize, I recount, and I redirect. But in the midst of all of that, the true power of this psalm isn't David's example. As good as this coping mechanism is for answering and addressing the question, what do you do when the emotions are in control of you? I think the true power of this passage goes beyond that. It's actually quite subtle. What David does in in Psalm 40, I think that's really powerful for us, is that David demonstrates hope. It takes hope to write down Psalm 40. It takes hope to wait. So I want to take you back to verse 1. He said, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and he heard my cry. Now, David writes this not in English. He writes it in a different language. And the way he wrote it that day when he wrote this thing down, um, it says waited patiently in the English. But the original language is David writes the word waited twice. He says, I waited, waited on the Lord. David's like, I don't want you to miss it. You weren't there that season. You weren't there in that moment. I wasn't just waiting. I was waiting, waiting on the Lord. I don't know how long that season of his life was. I don't know how heavy what he was dealing with in that moment. But I know that when David writes it down emotionally, the way it's reflected is he has to write the word wait twice. And then he he turns and he says what he turned to me and he heard my cry. The imagery there, this doesn't do it justice. If you've ever seen a parent with a small child who's on the ground, who's been doing something over here, and all of a sudden, it's that parent's whole course is redirected, and is down on one knee, and is focused on the child, and there's compassion, and there's mercy, and they're like, oh, sweetie, I'm so sorry. If you've ever seen that, that's what David's describing. A God who turned to him, who got down on his knee, and he scooped him up and sustained him. And this is deeply emotional. This is like alive for David as he's writing it. And he says, he took me out of a slimy pit out of the mud and mire, and I love it. He uses two different words because he's like, not only was I sinking, but it was stinking. Because the mud and mire kind of has this connotation of something that was like death-ridden, decaying. It's funky. It's funky. Doesn't smell good. And he has no place to stand. He had no bearings. He had no stability. I don't know if you've ever been in a place like that where you feel like everything around you is falling apart and you are too. He's like, that's where I was. And what did you do? Not only did you turn to me and you heard my cry, but you lifted me up and you put me on a solid rock. So I guess if you've ever seen a child learning how to swim, there's this terrifying moment when they're in over their head where they realize like, If I go down to find ground, I die. And yet what happens is the lifeguard instructor comes and picks them up, lifts them up, and puts them. And something happens internally when they get placed on solid ground. They feel stable. They feel secure. And they feel... This is what David's describing. He's like, I have experienced God lifting me out. But the most powerful part about this passage... Is a subtle piece of punctuation. See, I think David could have easily had a period, but he doesn't. He could have just said, verse one, I waited patiently for the Lord. Period. That was it. That was all. That was the story. Period. I waited and I waited, and nothing happened. I was sinking in a slimy pit, mud and mire. Period the end. That's all that happened. But we don't find a period. We find a semicolon, which is a very powerful piece of punctuation in a life story. I don't know if this was a year. I don't know if this was five years, but I do know that there was not a period that got put there. A semicolon did see David was semi hopeful. He had a sense that no matter where he was, there was still a chance that something could happen. Something could be redone. He's like, look, 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 I I need you to know I'm waiting, waiting. This is not the end of my sentence. This is just a life season. This is just, this is just where I am, but this is not where I'm headed. I'm waiting, waiting. I don't put a period. I don't put that period there yet because God's not done with me. I have a hope in Him. I have a trust in Him. I believe right now I'm just waiting, but I believe something's going to happen. Something's going to turn around. And that for many of us, that what oftentimes keeps us on the edge and prevents us from stepping in, jumping in, leaning in to hope is that we're not sure it's going to work out. We're hedging our bets and we're not really sure if God's big enough to handle our struggles. If God's really big enough to handle the addiction. If God's really big enough to handle the relational romantic status that we find ourselves in. God's really big enough the handle, the loneliness, or the depression that I'm dealing with on the inside. And we put a period, and then we move on. And what's beautiful about Psalm 40 is David refused to put a period. He believed that God was the God of the semicolon, that God was able to take what had been written and add something to it that completely changed the sentence. Didn't I waited patiently for the Lord, period, so vastly different than I waited patiently for the Lord. Semicolon, he turned to me and heard my cry. Radically different sentences because of a semicolon. And that for some of us right now in situation, I believe you're on this side of the semicolon. And your next choice is to determine whether or not you're going to put a period there or whether you're going to hope, whether you're going to lean, believe and live in a way that says, God, I believe there can be Another side to the story. Another turn to what's already been written. I believe you're the God of the semicolon. I believe that you're a God who's able to do immeasurably more than I could ask or imagine. Have you put a period where God wants to put a semicolon? Have you said that about your relationship? Have you said that about your professional life? Have you said that about you personally and what you're feeling slave to? And is it possible, as we look to this next season of life, that God wants to put a semicolon, Or you've put a period? The reason I can say that is because this summer has been the summer of semicolons for me. Seven years ago, Ella was born. And we always wanted to have more. And for seven years, we hoped, we believed, we sought medical advice. And still year after year after year after year, I waited, waited. Waited, waited. And it was really tempting in those moments to put a period. And yet, what's happened is that in this situation, hope materialized in a way where God interjected a semicolon. Because four weeks ago, he was born. And I hold a semicolon every single day. And then I get to sing to that semicolon every single day. Because the God we serve is not a God of the period. Like I get maybe your your marriage has fallen apart. I get that your kids are estranged. I get that financially you feel stuck. I get that internally you just don't know what to do. But I'm telling you that what makes Psalm 40 hopeful is not you. Is that there's a God that's bigger than you, that's greater than you, that's able to take where you want to put a period. And he adds the dash and transforms it completely. And that is it possible that if you just kept stepping, if you kept being faithful, if you kept living and believing and trusting and walking, that maybe God wants to take your circumstance and your situation and do something extraordinary. Another way that I've seen the semicolon has actually been you. At the beginning of the summer, I stood on the stage and said, hey, guys, uh, we've had this crazy offer. Somebody wants to help match dollars that are given towards our building that. And we had over three hundred and eleven thousand dollars. So I just want you to look at that number. Okay? So you may not be in the world of church finances, but let me tell you, church finances, the worst time ever to do anything financially is in the summer. Like our attendance, we can have a high and a low swing of almost 100 people in the summer. And the difference between here who's here in the fall and spring and then the summertime. Like, it's a radical swing. And so we're like, you, wait, hold up. You want us to give, but we can't give if we ain't got. So we need access to, to access this offer. Like, do you realize this is the worst timing ever for an opportunity like this? Like, could you not come back in the fall when there are people here? I mean, seriously, I'm like, internally, our team... Summer's a scary time for a church. And yet, extraordinarily, there wasn't a period. God put a semicolon. Because as of today, this is what we are in building that. Because you gave. Because you believe, because you generously stepped in, because you believe that God is the God of the semicolon, we saw 311 become 47.5. That's extraordinary. And I tell you all of that, not to brag about what we've seen, but so that you would be stirred to reimagine what you could see in your own life. So that your prayers could be awakened. Awakened about what he might want to do in your family this season or what he might want to do in your heart this week or maybe to awaken some dreams that you've let die or to bring a romantic life back into your life when you thought there was no chance like what precedes change is often hope that if you want to see a turn it begins with us turning to him and believing that he's bigger, greater than what we could ask or imagine. And that the God who stands above us right now desires to take your period and turn it into a semicolon. And it begins with you offering it up to him and saying, God, I'm done trying to write my story. Can you rewrite mine? Can you come in and turn this thing completely upside down? Forgive me where I've placed a period where you want to put a semicolon. And breathe fresh hope. Fresh life. Because you can handle a whole lot more negative if where you know you're headed is so much better than where you currently are. And that's the God we serve and that's the invitation for you this morning whether online or in the room to exchange your period for semicolon let's pray thanks again for joining us did you know we've created a free app just for you whether you're exploring or want to grow in your faith the app is a great place to start if you found today's teaching helpful we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.